Well, as I said, thank you guys for joining me these last 10 weeks. And so this last session is just designed to be a wrap up. And uh, hopefully um, you can take this uh, handout with you and you can use it as kind of a, a, a little handbook or a little kind of reference guide. Just give you some quick bullet points yeah. if you're having conversations with people. You can always zoom in to each individual session if you want to. And uh, they're always online as well as the handouts are there too. So we're going to roll through this pretty quickly because we've all done this before. And, you know, of course, stop if you have any questions. But again, the, the goal here is just to kind of uh, give you something that you can reference as you go along. So week one, we talked about worldview and apologetics. And we defined apologetics as a defense of the faith. Apologia, right, to defend. And our apologetic... Great Commission is 1 Peter 3.15. Anybody remember what that says? Our little command? Be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared to do what? Yes. Yep. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense. There's our word, apologia. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you, yet do it as a jerk with much yelling <laughs> and Facebook comments. Oh no, that's, sorry, that's not what that says. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So those last two words are very, very important. So we do. What's that part? <laughs> Would you like to share with the whole class? No, I don't. Um, we do apologetics. To evangelize because we're spreading the gospel we're sometimes defending the gospel to people who are not Christians and so we're not doing it necessarily just to win an argument or to make them feel stupid we are doing this to evangelize them okay the goal is not to berate people a lot of people have a bad opinion of apologetics as somebody who likes to argue that's not apologetics it is defending the faith with gentleness and respect and hopefully compelling leading someone into considering their spiritual state and to be able to turn towards Christ and so part of why we do apologetics is evangelism and the other part is equipping the church uh, Ephesians 4 we equip the saints for the work of ministry and that's part of apologetics that's hopefully what we're doing here over these last 10 weeks is giving you confidence and some tools to have some conversations with people and so in other words, like Highlands Bible Church, apologetics is to, uh, we do that to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. All right, so we talked about a worldview. Worldview is a way of processing the world, and it shapes how we live in it. Everyone has a worldview. Remember the quote, does a fish know it's wet? What's, what's, the, what's the objective behind that quote, does a fish know it's wet, as compared to a worldview? Why do we say that? Because if you're swimming in it, you're not necessarily aware of what it is that <laughs> exactly. you're Exactly. Yep. Fish doesn't know it's wet. Fish right. just thinks it's normal, right? Yeah. Fish would know if it's not wet. Um, but yeah. yeah, same thing with the worldview. It's just kind of the air that you breathe. It's the environment that you're in. It influences how you process the world around you and how you live in it. And you <clears> probably <throat> don't even know what's happening. But every single person has a worldview in that, okay? Each worldview attempts to answer common questions like, who am I? What is my purpose in life? What went wrong? 
and how do we fix it? Every worldview, every system, every religion. For example, who am I? I'm a pastor. What is my purpose in life? To preach the gospel and eat chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> So it's good when you get into a conversation with someone to clarify what their worldview is and ask them those questions, and they probably don't even know that they, they have answers to those questions, but that's what they're trying to do. Every system is trying to answer those questions, right? So for a Christian, what common... Well, I, I don't have to change the slide, but you probably have the answers on your thing. I'll just change the slide. Dang it! One of these days, when I have more time, I'll I'll do this right. I like I like make the make the blanks fill in when I click the slide and all that. But maybe next time, maybe midweek problems with Christianity 2.0. <laughs> For a Christian, we are created in the image of God, or created in God's image with dignity and value, right? If we are Christians, we are his adopted children. We are holy, we are dearly loved in Jesus Christ, right? The first part, I should say, applies to every single human being on the planet Earth, right? We're all created. Every single person is created in God's image mm -hmm. with dignity and value. From the tiny infant in a mother's womb to the 105-year-old person who is forgotten somewhere by their family, right? to the 14-year-old girl who's being sex-trafficked sex in Indonesia, right? To the homeless person that we see on the streets, right? To the millionaire, to the, uh, the people who are making millions and millions of dollars, right? Every single person's created in God's image with dignity and value. How does that affect an issue like abortion? If we say who we are from a biblical perspective, how does that overlay the issue of abortion. Talk about human life. That, that, unborn, that unborn is uh, made in the image of God. Yeah. That unborn is a person. It's a person. Right? Yeah. So therefore, they're made in God's image. Right? Therefore, they have dignity and value. It's not something that we can just throw away because we want to. What is my purpose in life as a Christian? Is to glorify God by becoming more like Him in holiness. And that last part's really important because sometimes we'll just truncate that and say, to glorify God. Okay, cool, but what's the way we glorify God? By looking more like God, by growing in holiness. Hi, bud. All right? Hey there. Come on in. Hi. Uh, what went wrong in the Christian worldview? There's a couple spots up here, too, or we can switch seats around. Whatever you want. That woman gave Adam the apple. That's right. It was totally her fault. <laughs> Barb, you got to hit him harder than that. <laughs> what? And, and so sin came into the world. So, so then what? So what was the big deal? What, what happened? What, what happened when sin came into the world? What were some of the effects of sin coming into creation the world? Creation was cursed. Creation was cursed. Okay. And how do we see creation being cursed? What are some examples of that? Poison ivy. Poison ivy. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. <laughs> Yellow jackets. European hornets. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, natural disasters, right? All that stuff, absolutely. Yep. So then what's the solution to that? Jesus, yeah. Jesus. Everybody's like, it can't Sunday be Jesus. School <laughs> Sunday school answers only, right? How is Jesus the solution to that? Because scripture calls him the second Adam. Okay. So Adam, sin comes into the world through Adam, and it has to be redeemed by, by someone of Adam's bloodline. That's why Jesus has to be both God and man. Yeah. So Jesus is man to represent us, but he's also God in order to pay the price that man could not pay for what went wrong in sin. And he did that by his perfect life and his sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So he did that. That was the solution that God provided. Right? No other worldview has an answer for that. No other worldview has an answer for what went wrong and how do we fix it. And we talked about the three major worldview buckets, atheism, selfism, and theism. Atheism has nothing at the center. Selfism has self at the center. And theism has God at the center. Right? That is a really big oversimplification, but those are three big buckets, right? Even things like other religions and things, um, we could throw into the selfism bucket because you're the one that's then saying that that's true, right? instead of submitting to God as the absolute truth. Which brings us to the problem of truth, which was week number two. The biblical worldview is that God is truth. What does that, what does that mean when you say God is truth? Somebody tease that out a little bit. You can see someone in the opposite worldview that might have a different idea of truth. But if Christian walks in and says, nope, God is truth, tease that out a little bit. There's nothing that, uh, it, there's nothing inside of God that is untrue, and there's nothing that's true outside of God. Okay. Okay. That is any error. Okay. Ronald, good. Thank you, No. It um, is the ultimate stopping point, standard. Yeah. So he's the source. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The arbiter. Yep. Okay. So he's the definition and the arbiter of truth. I like that. Rhoda? Uh, if there's a substance that is identified as truth, that means that there is an absolute for the truth. Yep. So a relevance of the yep. idea of truth can't be real. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, it was funny, you guys were all like stepping stones to exactly where I wanted to go, right? That, that idea that, okay, so in order for something to be true, right, there has to be a standard to compare it to, and God is that standard, right? That's how we know. God's the very definition, as Ron said, the arbiter, right? Noel said that every, it's all of who God is. He's true. It's impossible for him to be anything other than true, right? God designed all of life to operate against this objective standard of truth, right? Think about it. It's in everything that we do. There's an objective standard of truth everywhere we go. We make comparisons all day long about what's true and right and what's not true and right, right? That's how God designed it to work, and he's the one. 
So there is an objective standard of truth, and that is God himself and his word. So here we go, and I'm going to go stepping through each one of these weeks, uh, now that we're through the first week there, with stating the biblical worldview and just looking at various objections and responses quickly. Okay, so some objections, right? And before each objection, right, always ask, or after they state their objection, right, when you're responding to their objection, Always ask, how did you come to this conclusion? It's a good idea when you're engaging with somebody, you're talking to somebody, always ask questions. Ask a lot of questions. Just don't make statements, right? How did you come to this conclusion? So someone might say, there's no such thing as absolute truth. <laughs> exactly. They're saying the same thing. Yeah, which in and of itself, they're claiming as an absolute truth. So that's inconsistent. It's not logical. It's Is that contradictory. True? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can ask that question. Yeah. Is that true? And they would say, yes. If they, if they haven't heard this before, they're going to walk right into that, right? right? So a lot of people have heard that, so they don't so much walk into that anymore, right? So we have to know uh, the difference between what is false, right? And some things might not be false, but they might be a paradox, they might be a mystery, right? Remember, just because we can't understand something doesn't mean it's not true, right? And that's where a lot of people get trapped in thinking there's no objective truth. It's like, well, I don't know how that works, so I guess God can't exist. It's like, okay, well, I don't know how an airplane works either, but I get in one, right? It doesn't mean it's not true, okay? Uh, another... Objection. Truth is relative from the selfist worldview. Therefore, if it's true for me, it's true. And right out of Oprah Winfrey, live your truth. <laughs> Speak your truth, right? Be your truth. How do we respond to this besides asking, how did you come to this conclusion? If someone says, you know, true for me so it must be true jump out of it go skydiving and decide you want to fall up today <laughs> see how that works out for you yeah it's inconsistent right the whole world is, is in face like nobody lives that nobody can live consistently that's a great example very extreme example but a great example <laughs> look at a medicine bottle it says take this two times a day we're not going to go nah i'm going to go four times a day Right? Doctor comes in the room and says, you have cancer. You're not going to say, well, that's your truth, pal. <laughs> that's not my truth. Right? Nobody lives like this. It is completely inconsistent. And one you might find probably most these days is that we can't know truth. Mm. It's completely impossible. You just can't know truth. Truth is not knowable in and of itself. Right? And you say, oh, contraire. We actually can't. And you got to kind of expand that. Okay, we're not just talking about Christianity. How do you know any truth? You can know truth by reason. You can know truth by logic. You can know truth by consistency, by evidence. There's a bunch of ways we can know truth. So that in and of itself isn't very consistent. Bad ways to know truth are things like instinct, feeling, opinion, tradition, pragmatism. What's pragmatism? If it works, it must be true, right? The ends justify the means. In other words, however I got there, you know, I got there, right? That's, I believe that when I'm playing golf. 
but not in life <laughs> exactly right pragmatism you don't you can't you can't necessarily know truth like that questions on the problem of truth thoughts comments encouraging remarks you don't get it you don't get truth can't be, can't be. oh it can't be what I'm saying is not true yes <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's look at week three, the problem of scripture. What is scripture? It's fiction and fairy tales. It's full of mistakes. You Christians believing this crazy thing. Biblical worldview says the Bible is the word of God. And there's two primary ways we can know that. One is the internal evidence. What might I mean by internal evidence? When we're talking about saying the Bible is the word of God. What would I mean by internal evidence? Scripture mm -hmm. that backs itself up in other Yep. The Bible itself claims it. It's a very slippery slope because, of course, they're going to call you out on that right away and say, oh, it's a great circular argument. You believe it's true because the Bible says it's true. So, well, yes, but no. It's just, there's internal. The Bible claims it is true, right? And we had a really fun example if I can find the book of First Timothy, um, where the Bible itself calls itself Scripture. First Timothy 5, 18, 8, 18 uh, Paul quotes Scripture. He says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, cool. Old Testament. Everybody knows that, right? But then he goes on to say, The laborer deserves his wages. It's like you should hear like a, a record screeching sound. Like, what do you mean? And it's in red, too. So Jesus said that. So he directly quotes what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, and he calls it Scripture. Along, on the same level as the Old Testament Scripture, which is it's, it's mind-blowing to think about that. So did they know it was Scripture? Yeah, Paul called it Scripture. And he said the words of Jesus were on the same level as the Old Testament Scripture. So there's internal evidence. There's also external evidence. What might I mean by external evidence? Historicity. Yeah, historicity. Yep. And such writings as the church fathers, right? We have a wealth of writing in the church fathers. I've, I've used this resource a lot. And if you want something that's a very handy reference, this right here. <clears throat> a dictionary of early Christian beliefs. It's organized topically. So you can just go, like, for, haps, uh, for happenstance, I open to free will and predestination. And you can read on and on and on about what every, in chronological oh, yeah. order, <laughs> what a church father's had to say about free will and predestination. No cosmic. Okay. It's no, not scripture. No maverick molecules, no, Michael. Right. Oh. <laughs> just saying. I just, out of my own free will, a chance, open I opened to that. Yeah. Actually, it wasn't my free will. I definitely didn't choose to open to that page. But I guess it was ordained. What, what about archaeology? Yeah. Yep. As an external, yeah, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls yep. are finding older um, copies of the Bible as well mm -hmm. that match the current Bibles. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the biology well. teacher says even science corroborates it. Yep. Yep. There you go. Hashtag right. flat Earth. Mm, yeah, we're gonna skip that one. Okay. All right. Let's look at some responses and objections. First response. The Bible was written by men and full of mistakes. That's typically how books are written. <laughs> but, if, but if we're to claim the truth that it was inspired and authored by the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't believe that anyway. So, right. 
Let's just start there. It was written by men. Yes, it was written by men. First Peter 1, 20, 21 tells us that it was written by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So not just men. It didn't mean they went into a trance and started writing things. They used their personality and their brains. And the Holy Spirit told them what to write. But another question, a really good question to ask, is can you point out any mistakes in the Bible to me? What if they say, okay, here's one. Matthew said that uh, when uh, Jesus came into town and they wanted to get the donkey, he, uh, he said, go get two donkeys. But then Mark said there was only one donkey. So, ha, the Bible's full of mistakes. The other donkey died. <laughs> what would we say to something like that? People see different. People see the same scene, scene differently. Yep. Yep. It does. It's kind of an argument from silence, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't two donkeys there. And they just recorded it differently. Right. Well, yeah. and Mark is getting his information. Uh, he isn't one of the disciples, so he's not right. one of the people there. Right. So Matthew could be like, oh yeah, I remember Jesus saying that. And he said, get two. But really, when we went there, there was only one. So we brought back one. And when Mark gets the story, he knows that there was one. So he goes, there was one. Yep. Same right. events. Could be good. Ron? Coincidence and paradox. Those are the, the okay. core issues. Okay. And things like that. They're yep. not contradicting each other. Right. That's what we got <clears throat> to separate out. Not contradicting. And also get to the meat of the issue. Like, okay, fine. Yeah. yeah. What does this have to do right. with anything? What does that's, this have to do yeah. with the gospel? Exactly. What is this? Is is any part of the gospel in jeopardy if there's two donkeys or one donkey? No, not at all. Right. And the, the core of it is these are eyewitness accounts. These are retellings of things that people witnessed. If you put ten people on a street corner and right. they all witness the same car accident, they're going to have different testimonies and details. Right. If we went home to our spouses who were not here tonight and they asked who was there tonight, right, we'd probably all have differing accounts, right? <clears throat> Doesn't mean it was wrong. It was just what we remembered. But we have to have confidence in the Word of God. I think Carson points out like 95 or 97 percent of the Bible is not in dispute. Right? And there's, we know all these contradictions. That's the science of textual criticism. We know them all. So they're not going to trump us in anything. right? So ask if you can, they can point out any mistakes. Okay? Um, another objection. The Bible was created by the church much later and isn't reliable. Joe Rogan himself said the, the Bible was written by Constantine. Oh. That's just that's just a matter of timeline. You can disprove that easily. Yeah? yeah. Tell me a little bit more. Because Constantine was three sixty. Yeah. AD. So we have Dead Sea Scrolls that are way older than that. Yeah. By every conceivable metric. Yeah. So that statement on its face is is false. Yeah. And so I like the, what one guy said. He's like, can somebody get Joe Rogan a book, please? <laughs> He's like, that's just not, right? It's a good chance for us to give a quick overview of how the Bible was really created, right? It did begin as an oral tradition, right? So in case they go down that path of saying, yeah, it was just an oral tradition. It was a game of telephone. And, you know, like when you play a game of telephone in youth group, who knows what's going to come out at the end of it, right? It's like, no, all oral tradition was controlled back then. It was controlled by the eyewitnesses. And later on, when they started dying, or ready to die, they knew they had to write these things down for the church. And so they wrote them down. Do we have just a couple copies? 
like Homer's Iliad, like we have like a dozen or so copies kicking around, or do we have a lot of copies? Thousands. Thousands, thousands upon thousands upon of copies. Thousands. And we compare them all together and we can see which one makes sense, right? If you've got 5,000 copies that have it this way and then you have 10 copies that have it another way, what's right? You know? So the science of textual criticism, right? And as far as what goes in the Bible, we had the canon as early as the first century. The Muratorian canon was, I think, 190 or something like that. It was the second century. Um, but the church fathers certainly had their writings in the second and third centuries that mentioned the canon of Scripture. What do I mean by the canon of Scripture? A big gun that goes boom? We talk about the canon. What does that mean? The vetted, tested, and approved scholarly acceptance of what was considered scripture. Yep. So it's what books should be in the Bible, right? Do we have any books that are missing from our Bible? Are there other books that are missing from our canon? Nope. Nope. We have everything we need to have. Right. And it's been stable for centuries and centuries and centuries. The canon was something that was not so much uh, created, but it was discovered. Right? Was it written by an apostle? Does it agree with the rest of the teachings? Does it fit in? All of that stuff. So that's what we talk about the canon. Questions about the problem of scripture? Ron. The, the two councils that formulated and solidified our modern Bibles are important because even Martin Luther disagreed or argued against having Revelation included because he was on the fence about whether or not that was an inspired work. And James. He hated James. Yeah, and so there was a there was a straw. straw. <laughs> There's no written work in human history that's been more scrutinized and attacked and tried to be purged from existence yeah. other than the canon of scripture. Yeah, and it's still here, just like Jesus said it would be. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Amen. Bro. And to tie that point in with the other one that we just had, it's actually um, the scientific trust and the integrity of the scriptures, which they use as their primary document when they're dating archaeology or when they're dating their own facts, their number one source text for the true time periods or true people is, yeah. is a biblical reference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amen. Good stuff. Okay. Week four. We're flying through history. The problem of Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, I probably should have broken that up into two slides. Who was Jesus. The biblical worldview says Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Again, one of the main objections, and I, I only listed one objection here, um, was that you know, much to the Jesus seminar, if anybody heard of that and things like that, we can't possibly know the true historical Jesus. Because the church just created this Jesus to be whatever it wanted to be. And plus, we know nothing about Jesus for the first 30 years of his life. So what happened there? Where did he go to college? Huh? We don't know that. <laughs> right? So we can't possibly know the true historical Jesus. Right? That's a huge, very common objection you will hear to Christianity. Again, ask, how did you come to this conclusion? And just say straight up, yeah, I can't prove everything you want to know about Jesus beyond all doubts. But you know what? We can know about Jesus. And the best way we can know about Jesus is what Jesus self-understood about himself. So what was Jesus' self-understanding of who he was? That's the most powerful thing that you can say. 
is look at the Bible and, and see what Jesus thought of himself. And without trying, last time we got like seven or eight of these, right? He agreed with Peter when he called him the Christ. Remember that scene where, where Jesus kind of locks eyes with the disciples and says, you know, hey, who are people saying that I am? Right? And they're like, oh, you know, Elijah, John the Baptist. Yeah, and then he drops the boom and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus agrees with him. Then he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, <laughs> immediately followed by that. Right? <laughs> Number two, he was executed for claiming to be God. That's what got him executed, right? He was walking around saying he was God. That's what, that's what the Jews wanted to throw stones at him and throw him off the cliff time and time again. Number three, he invoked the name of Yahweh, calling himself I Am, saying that he was around before uh, Abraham, right? Remember when he was walking on the water even, he said, I Am. Right? Same words in the Greek that are in the... Uh, in the Greek New Testaments or in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. So when Moses is standing there and he says, who, who I say sends me, I am. Same Greek words. And they're saying the same thing. Uh, he referred to himself constantly as the son of man from Daniel. How many times have we seen that in Matthew? Time and time again. Here's a big one. He demonstrated control over creation. He calmed the winds and the waves, right? He said, be still. Two more. He taught and spoke with authority. What was... People are fascinated by him. They were amazed, right? They were astonished, Matthew tells us time and time again, at his authority in the way that he was teaching. Not like one of their scribes, right? It says. Think about Matthew 5. When he goes through the law again, what did he say? You have heard it written. You have heard it said. Do not commit adultery. But then what did he say? But I am saying to you. Right? Talk about authority. He's literally, basically fulfilling slash revising the law of Moses right before their eyes. Right? When Mary and Martha lost him and they went back to Jerusalem, they found him in the temple, and they were astounded at his teaching, just as a young person. Yeah. And he spoke with such authority. He had him on the edge of their seat. Yeah. And he's a little guy then, right? Yeah. Yeah. So his authority and his teaching was especially uh, powerful. And last, he demonstrated control over evil and evil spirits. He just talked to them. No, no in, incantations, right? No magical words, no big ceremonies. Mm -hmm just came out. So one of the most powerful things we could do when people are saying, you know, we could never know the true historical Jesus, like, okay, let's look at what Jesus said about himself. And there are more. This was just the ones we went through. Right? And even the evil spirits do you as God. Yeah. They acknowledge that. Yep. With the pigs. Yep. Yeah. And they ask permission, right? Yes. Please let us go into the pigs. Yeah. We also, again, can have some kind of external evidence when we talk about the early church, definitely, but you know, as reflected in the early church fathers, unquestionably thought that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. So, questions, comments on the problem of Jesus? 
Okie dokie. Problem of evil. The biblical worldview says God is sovereign over all things, including evil. What does sovereign mean again? I always forget that. Somebody had to... Control. Control. He has control over every single aspect of his creation. From the ant that walks across the sidewalk to the bird flying through the air. That's what scripture says. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. That's something that a lot of people don't think about. They don't go that deep in saying, no, it really is. He really does have control. That's what the Bible says. He really does have control over every single. No maverick molecules, we said, right? Just a few minutes ago, joking around. But that's what it is. And that's kind of in his job description, right? You would think that's the way it's going to be. If he's God, uh, he kind of should know everything about what's going on. And that includes evil. Evil's not outside of that, right? It's still under that umbrella of his sovereignty. And so that then gets the big rub of, okay, well, what are you saying? God causes evil, right? And what are we saying? What, are, what, what could we say to, to say, does God cause evil? Sometimes it's a slippery slope. Sometimes, yes. I'm knee deep in the Old Testament. There's plenty, plenty of examples of God doing some really dicey things there, right? Job. What? Job. Job. Okay, but when Abraham went to ask permission, he did. Yep, he asked permission, and God allowed it. Right. But is he causing? He he doesn't cause evil. He allows evil. Well, he rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not evil. But that's not evil. That's justice. <laughs> 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 right. It gets into, okay, what do we mean by cause and what do we mean by evil? Killed right. God can't do evil. It's impossible for him to do evil. It's impossible for him to sin. Um, but we know he's sovereign over all things, and we know he allows evil sometimes for his purposes, which we may or may not get to see. But he put, he put a limit. But, he put a limit because he put a limit when that happened in he, yep, he, he did. He gave him a limit. Yeah. Yep, yep. But we also know that if <clears throat> the raining fire from heaven on Sodom, right? Mm -hmm. We would look at that and say, "Wow, that's evil." That's not evil for oh, God. Well, I got one. He sends the the serpents to kill the Israelites mm -hmm. because they've transgressed. Mm -hmm. So there are there are passages where even he he unleashes his wrath. Does it? Yeah. Use the word evil, uses wrath. But we yeah. can't use that definition of evil on God. Yeah. It's evil, it might, might seem evil to us, but it's not to him because it's in his perfect judgment. Mm. And that's his perfect wrath. Yeah. I'm reminded again of authority. Yeah. Right? As the author of life, yeah. he has every uh, right yeah. to do with it as he pleases. Yeah. Thankfully, he is a just God, but also a loving God. So Amen. We don't see the full picture. So when calamity happens, yep. when a tornado wrecks your neighborhood, there's purpose in that that we don't understand. Yeah. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but that is really the best counter argument when people levy that attack against Christianity. How could a good God allow children to die of cancer? Okay, well, if God doesn't exist, how do you explain it? Right. Yeah. Go for it. Absolutely. Well, if you want to carry it to the ultimate conclusion, there's nobody. Jesus says there's nobody good. Yes. Nobody's exactly. righteous. Yeah. Why does bad things happen to good people? That's why we it keep asking questions. We keep defining terms. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. But some 
objections in and around that, right? God can't exist with all the pointless evil and suffering in the world, right? Again, well, okay, how did you come to that conclusion, right? And also, how can you call anything evil without an objective moral standard? Like, what's your basis for calling something evil or not evil? Because unless it's the perfect standard of God, then it's kind of arbitrary and, and subjective, right? Yeah, Rob. So if you're in a conversation with someone about that, and how would you as a pastor define evil for them? How would, we as a, how would I as a pastor define evil for them? From the human perspective, it's something that uh, seems to cause harm, I would say. Uh, more harm than good. Uh, something that causes harm that we can't see any good from. Uh, maybe something that seems random and severe. Uh, things like that. I would say it's a manifestation of sin to some degree. Yeah, could be minor. I, if you're going to go theological, yes. But I was, <clears throat> oh, yeah. I was focusing more on the, Practical. is that what you were looking for, the conversational level? or Because definitely the, the theological level is, it's a, it's a sure. Yeah, I can just see myself in a conversation with someone who's really struggling with this and where I explain to them that God is the arbiter of all things and they're struggling with the idea of God being the arbiter of evil as well as good, and even if I put it under the umbrella of God is, a, is adjudicator of justice, and some things are for justice, some things are for testing, some things are for refining, Yep. even if you put it under the, all of the Augustine umbrellas for the, the why do bad things happen, at some point I feel like there needs to be a, a solid definition of, of what evil is mm -hmm. at the base of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And evil doesn't win. No, ultimately we know that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Evil doesn't win. Um, but the Bible claims that God is sovereign over both good and evil, and we talked about those spectrum texts. Like, I'm the one who wounds, and I'm the one who kills, I'm the one who heals and makes alive. And Isaiah, and Deuteronomy, and Samuel, right? So God didn't create evil, right? God doesn't uh, work evil in and of itself. Right? He can't sin. He can't be charged with any wrongdoing because he is completely sovereign over his creation. But he does stand indirectly behind evil, waiting to redeem it for his purposes. He's the only one that can redeem evil. And so there's the hope of pointless evil. It's like, well, God's still at work. And we don't know what he's doing, but we have to trust him. Right? We know he's here. It's very tempting to throw out some platitudes at that point. Don't do that. No platitudes. Right. Well, I'm sure you know you lost your job, but God's got a better job for you around the corner. Mm -hmm. Maybe not, right? right? When we talk about just the overall question of why is there evil in the world then, you split that into two sections with a logical problem, like, okay, so how can both God and evil exist, which we talked about, right? But there's also the practical problem. That's what people want to know. Okay, why is this evil happening to me right now? Right? And that's where we can reassure them with the presence of God, the character of God, the plan of God, the redemption of God, and that he uses evil for good. Right? Talk about Genesis 50-20 and go right to Joseph. Say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We know that for sure. Um, and we know the presence of God with us. But ultimately... We've got to step carefully because ultimately we're in God's territory there. 
And I don't know is a perfectly good answer. We've got to remember that. Because here's the rationale. No one else knows either. Christianity is the only worldview that comes close, and I believe it is, the actual truth of why is there evil in the world and why is evil and how does this be made right? How is this made right? right? And as Ron said, well, okay, then ask them. How do you explain it in your worldview? They're not going to come up with a good answer. Right? If God doesn't exist, what does it all matter anyway? Right? Removing God from the equation doesn't solve anything. Don't be mad at God. Okay, fine. God doesn't exist. You still have the problem of evil. <laughs> then what? How do you explain it if God's not in the picture? It just got worse if God's not in the picture. So, a big topic in seven minutes. But Other thoughts, questions on the problem of evil? Problem of science. This stems from, remember we had that drawing that we kept going back to, the two-story truth, where at the, the basement level you have facts and you have objective truth and you have things that can be proven by evidence. And then the top story you have things like faith and feeling and emotion and stuff like that. And morality or whatever. So science is saying, no, 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 stay down here in facts. I'm not going to go up to the top level where all that's you know fluffy, subjective, religious stuff. Feelings. We're talking about facts, right? So the idea is that science has disproven Christianity, but that's not true. So the biblical worldview says science and faith do not contradict. Science is the study of what God created. Christians should be pro-science. We like science. Science helps us understand God's creation. And sometimes we have that reputation of being like anti-intellectual. Like, you know, I don't want to know about science. That's just all... Well, yeah, there's a definite bias in science away from God, right? We have to acknowledge that because I think that's been clearly proven. But in the end, science is our friend. It shows us what God's creation is about. There are plenty of scientists that are Christian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So some objections. There is no evidence for Christianity. Again, uh, the, uh, the scientism is the worship of science above all else, right? We've got to have evidence. But a good counter question, too, besides how did you come to that conclusion, is, okay, so what evidence would you need? And if you had enough evidence, would you believe? Be surprised. People say no. Because they don't want to believe. This is just all some objective game to them. <laughs> some intellectual chess match. I'm not really going to believe it anyway, but I want to see what you got, Christian. But Christianity does have evidence there's the historical evidence. We talked about some of that before with archaeology, with the manuscripts, with extra-biblical history. Right? We have personal evidence of what Jesus has done for us in our lives, the transformation of our lives that sometimes can't be explained other than the work of the Holy Spirit. But we also have things like peer-reviewed medical journals that tell us all about psychological and emotional and health benefits of people who are religious believe in Jesus, right? Okay, well, I'm sorry, I thought we were talking about science here, so why weren't we looking at scientific results that were in peer-reviewed medical journals that say all these wonderful health benefits, I thought that was evidence, isn't that evidence of, of people, you know? No, we don't want to look at that stuff. That's, that's the wrong kind of evidence, we don't want to look at that. 
Another objection you might hear is that miracles are impossible. And this gets down to, okay, for who? What's your definition of God? Right? Because miracles are not impossible for the biblical God. Right? It's God's creation. He can do whatever he wants to do with his creation. He's the one who created it in the first place. So... And plus, we have to remember that science is out of its lane here. Science is interested in natural explanations, natural causes. You want to call it a miracle, it's not a natural cause, then it's a supernatural cause. So thanks for coming, but can't really help me here, Mr. Scientist, because you're about natural causes, not supernatural causes. I'm not saying there are natural causes for a miracle. I'm saying there are supernatural causes for a miracle. I'm a supernatural God. Questions on science? Comments on science? There's another section. There's a whole other section? Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> another objection would be science has disproven Christianity. Okay, great. Well, if we're coming from an atheistic perspective where everything is random and meaningless then I guess all our scientific thoughts and theories are random and meaningless, too. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Right, how did you, exactly. <laughs> Always ask that. Always ask that. Did you use logic? Yeah. We can't have it both ways. We can't say this world is, uh, doesn't have a creator, and therefore everything is random and meaningless, and all we have is the here and now, right? Which is unstable, and we're all bags of carbon floating on a space rock you know, something like that. And then we can't also then say that, okay, but I've thought of this, and therefore this is true and correct and objective, and, you know, it's, it's contradictory. Also, kind of a fun one, science is not the only explanation for events. We all experience events that, you know, we don't just go back to science. Why is the water boiling? Well, it reached 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, well, that's maybe I just wanted some tea. How about that? That's a really good explanation, too, that has nothing to do with science. So science doesn't have the market on explanations. Science can only tell us how things work, not why or what, like the law of gravity. And as we said before, I think Rhoda said it a minute ago, science and Christianity used to play very well together because some of there are a ton of the founding fathers, so to speak, of science that were Christians. Right? And guess what? They were trying, they were loved, they loved science because they were trying to figure out more about God's creation. It brought them closer to God. And so in the end, really, one of the best things we can say is science doesn't compete with God as an explanation. We've got to reject that idea that it's science versus God. It's not science versus God. We like science. Science doesn't compete with God as an explanation. Science gives a different kind of explanation. It's just a different shade on the truth of God's creation. All right, now for real. Any questions about science? <laughs> Comments about science? Ro? One quick comment. I always like to tell my kids that, that science is a great way to study the, the, the wonder of, of how God made things. But to the yeah. point of the boiling water, if you don't understand the purpose of the creation, yeah. or if you don't see the majesty or the glory of the creation, it's just a molecule. 
the real magic yeah. and part of it that it brings life into it is to answer the purpose of the why and to see the glory in it. Yeah, see how systems exactly. and everything work so together. So science can never actually answer all the big questions of philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Sue? And also, some of the conclusions of scientific experiments or discoveries are conclusions that have been biased by the scientists with the worldview that is or just plain wrong. Christian. Right. Or just exactly. plain wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If you have believe in evolution and you find a tooth, you're gonna build a whole thing around it to to, you know, prove your point of view. So yeah. sometimes that affects Follow the science, the right? When convenient. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. But the, the reason that we have science at all is because the founders of science were Christians and they assumed that there was a natural law because God's a God of order. If they had had what we now would refer to as a materialist view of that everything is random, they wouldn't have bothered. They just would have went, well, oh, everything's random, so there's no point in trying to figure out how it works because there's no law binding it all together. The only reason they assumed that there was yeah. a law is because they had a Christian basis for it. Yeah. I like it. All right, week seven. We're getting there. The problem of Christians. That's us. We're the problem. <laughs> Christians are sinners saved by grace. Here's the biblical worldview. Christians are sinners, sinners saved by grace, and we need to own our failures, not cover them up. common objection would be, I can never believe in a faith like Christianity with the kind of Christians that I see. It's a really good response. It's a really good objection. Unfortunately, it's pretty accurate. Unfortunately, we've shot ourselves in the foot. Always ask, how did you come to this conclusion? A lot of times you're going to run into a scarred Christian kid. Right? Ron and I got into a conversation not too long ago with a scarred Christian kid. Right. Just dug a little bit deeper and found out. Something. Hmm. So, a lot of church hurt. Maybe even some serious hurt, right? So we have to agree. We have to call sin, sin. That is true. It's sin. The whole reason that God gave us Jesus is the resolution for sin and his glory, right? We clearly need him. We have to admit that, yes, if you did encounter church hurt or something that was wrong, that was sinful. I understand that. But to us, and this is probably more of our own kind of devotional and growth, is know why we're in this situation and seek to personally avoid it. And we talked about some things that we've done wrong in the past in evangelicalism and some things that we need to do better at. Like prioritize the local church over an individualistic private faith. Remember we talked about the, the Great Awakenings and how it turned into this big emotional movement and all of this stuff and then this private conversion moment and all of this. It's like, okay, well, it's not really supposed to be a private faith. So we're supposed to prioritize the local church over an individualistic private faith. We've played right into that, right? If, if Christianity is all about me and my quiet time and my experience with God, then you play right into the secular mindset that says, okay, fine, you have your truth and I have my truth. Right. See what we did there? We gave him ammunition. If we keep saying it's just about my personal walk with Jesus, it's like, well, yeah, we do have a personal walk with Jesus, but that's not the whole thing. Because then you just let him open the door to you have your truth and you have my truth. Second, we seriously pursue personal holiness. We've got to regard sin as sin, and we've got to kill it. 
instead of just being a hypocrite about it. Third, we need to reconnect with historic Orthodox faith. We've got a whole treasure trove of history that we've got to get acquainted with in the creeds and in the church fathers and all that stuff. There's no new heresies, folks. We're, you know, they've dealt with them all before. And another consideration is engage with humility. Thank you. Engage with humility. Quick comments about Christians. I got one. Yes. That statement, I could never believe in a faith like Christianity with the kind of Christians I see. That's a moral judgment. Yep. You can't make that if you don't believe in an objective morality. Yep. You can say, I'm not living up to my own standard, but what's worse, having a standard and not living up to it, or having no standard at all, yep. which is what selfism, well, atheism and selfism, because selfism says, well, I make my own standard. So yep. there's no excuse for not living up to your standard at that point. Yeah. So that's a, that, doesn't, that argument doesn't make any sense. I like it. You're thinking. <laughs> Very good. All right. Problem of exclusivity. Mm -hmm. Jesus claimed to be the exclusive way to God, and we've got to say it like that, right? It's not merely our claim. You Christians say that you're right. It's like, well, not really. Jesus claimed that he was the only way to God. I'm just believing what Jesus said. I'm not the one that's saying it, right? Some objections. Claiming exclusive truth is arrogant. Again, always ask, how did you come to this conclusion? But really, all truth by definition is exclusive. One plus one is two. It's not three or 648 or negative 12. Like, it's, it's exclusive. Jesus himself understood the Christian faith to be exclusive. He said that again, right? Was John 14, 6. Church kids. I hope it's John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? No man comes to the Father except through me. Right? But here's the other thing. Ask them, what if it's true? If Christianity is true, is that arrogant? No. Then it's the most compassionate thing that I can tell you. Right? If I have to tell you this, like, this will save your life, then it actually will save your life, then I'm not being arrogant, am I? I'm being compassionate because I care about you. Another one, religion is cultural. If you were born in Morocco, you'd be a Muslim, mm -hmm. right? But you're born in New Jersey, so apparently you're a Christian, right? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So geography now prevents us from seeking real truth. It's like, darn it, if I, was always, if I were born in the Bible Belt, I would have been a Christian. But I'm in New Jersey. I can't be a Christian now. I read one book, asked them, like, okay, so you were born into an atheistic neighborhood? <laughs> what does geography have to do with this? Like a culture, like does that prevent someone from seeking real truth? No, of course not. Side note, that's the nature of the Great Commission. What we're called to do, we're called to go into every nation and preach the gospel. And maybe one more on exclusivity. All religions are true for those who believe them. Christianity is your truth. It's not my truth. There are many paths to God, right? That whole thing. All religions are basically the same, right? No, all religions are actually mutually exclusive, as they claim mutually exclusive truth. And 
really what you're doing by saying all religions are the same, they're true for you and whatever, every, every faith is equally valid, is you're disrespecting those other religions. Like if Jason's a Muslim, I'm disrespecting Jason by saying he believes the same thing I do. No, he doesn't, clearly. Right? So let's not, let's not water down someone else's faith. Let's realize that they're all different and exclusive. A bumper sticker, coexist, right? <laughs> No, doesn't work. Okay, I get it. I mean, I'm, you know, we all need to live in harmony with each other as human beings, but those are mutually exclusive truths that can't in and of themselves coexist. <clears throat> all right? Last one. Sorry, it's a tiny one. I was going to. Oh, you know what I did? I split it up, but I never split it up on the first slide. Sorry. So here's problem of homosexuality was the last one. I feel like I'm at the iDoc. <laughs> you got it on your you got it on your handouts. Gee whiz. <laughs> I'm gonna give you the blank. What line can you read? Heterosexuality, here's the biblical worldview. Heterosexuality was part of God's creation, and therefore homosexuality is sinful. It's not a judgment, it's part of God's design. And we prove that from creation. Right? He created them male and female, right? It's part of what he did. Therefore, if you're gonna if you're gonna change the creation narrative, you need a new creation. But otherwise, it's sinful. Some preliminary uh, considerations before we engage, right? Remember our audience, they're going to be convinced. They're going to be confused. They're going to be contentious. And we need to be cautious. There's also some real hurt involved here, right? And remember the gospel. It's never stop being gay. Caleb, just stop being gay. And then Jesus will love you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is turn to Jesus for a new life. While we were yet sinners. Yep. Yep. All right, so a couple ones. Uh, the Bible never condones homosexuality. Wow, that's really small. <laughs> this is the best one. You could hope that someone says this. The Bible never condones homosex or condemns homosexuality because you could say, oh, but it does, right? <laughs> Would you like me to show you, since you brought up the Bible, <laughs> let's go to the Bible, right? And then you can go to Genesis 1, 27 and 28. He created them male and female, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 24, where a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then you can go to Matthew 19, where Jesus himself verifies that creation account and says it from Jesus' own lips. Romans 1. Romans 1. Right? But Jesus is powerful because people want to want to go to Jesus and say he just loved everybody and he had great hair and you know, he had the lamb around his neck and he would never say that. No. He did actually in Matthew 19. And any other passage in the New Testament that has the word porneia 
to mean sexual immorality, and you better believe homosexuality was involved in that definition as well. Another objection, you Christians pick and choose which commands you want to follow. Always get clarity on that. What do you mean by that? What are you talking about? You should realize that they're like, okay, so they know something. What, what commands are you talking about? <laughs> and they're going to go probably one of two places, either the old law, where it says, okay, so we can't eat shellfish anymore, or we can eat shellfish now, right? But homosexuality is still a sin. Explain that one, Christian. Right? I don't understand why that's the go-to. <laughs> There's, that's literally the easiest one. <laughs> it's the that's, easiest one. <laughs> shellfish are gross. <laughs> it shows us somebody doesn't understand. Yeah, that it's the, they, they opened Leviticus the like one time and they read the page and they were like, oh, good enough. Yep. And didn't read anything else. Yep. No or, this is a great story, because last week... Last week was homosexuality, right? And so it went online, and it's still online. Oh, really? We didn't get taken still, down? We're not banned yet. Maybe we'll get banned now. <laughs> but I had an atheist troll that followed it, and she let me have it, and she started with gluttony. That's the second one. She wow. goes, oh, you Christians, what about gluttony? Exactly. What about gluttony? You watch the video all the way through. Like, you're all fat and overweight, and how much money is that costing the healthcare system? And you don't care about that sin, but you want to pick and choose and pry into people's personal lives about their sexuality. And so I took great delight and said, you should probably watch the whole video before you come Because I talked about that. Because I know that's where you were going to go. Because it's a sin against the body, like homosexuality. Yeah. I mean, it is a sin. Of course, right. that we have to agree with it. You're right. You're right. There's plenty of people that are not healthy and right. overweight, and it's quite, yes, absolutely. So Jesus doesn't say right. anything about the healthcare system. <laughs> but God doesn't call gluttony an abomination. Right. right. So we've got to remember the the difference in severity in some of these things. All right. What about you're on the wrong side of history? Does this ever get bigger? Oh no, it did. Oh, sorry, guys. What about you're on the wrong side of history? Another one that says, okay, so you, what are you talking about there? But I'm on the right side of eternity, so. <laughs> <laughs> Again, ask, what do you mean by that? What else, what else were we on the wrong side of? 99% of the time, they're going to go to slavery. And you can say, okay, great. We agree. We were wrong. There were Christians that thought they could own people, and they were wrong, and it was sinful. But the good news is there were also Christians that said you can't own people, and they're the ones that work to abolish the slavery. Right? Any other issues, if you want to talk about Galileo and heliocentrism and stuff, it's like, okay, those aren't sin issues. They're just, no. <laughs> Even Galileo didn't want to leave the church. What? Even Galileo didn't want to leave the church over it. Yeah. He didn't agree. <laughs> How it should be done. Alright, two more. God made me gay. <laughs> no, he did not. Original creation upholds biblical heterosexuality. But original sin corrupted that creation, including our sexuality. And therefore, homosexual desires must be resisted like any other sinful temptation. So what they're saying there is they're, they're, they're 
having this logical conclusion that because it's there, because it's a desire, then therefore all desires are good. Because God gave them to me. Right? That's essentially what that argument is saying. Right? Draw it to its logical conclusion. That's what that's saying. That God made me gay, so therefore I just have to be true to myself. Okay. But your argument is saying that then all desires that you have then are good. So you have to be true to yourself. What if I'm an adulterating gambler? I have those desires. Let's go. I should just be true to myself, right? What if I want to punch Caleb in the nose, right? This is where I brought up, uh, oops, serial killers last time. <laughs> I was making nice examples. You go right to the serial killers. I bring killers. that up every time. <laughs> Only I, I was careful because I didn't phrase it in terms of me this time. Just yeah. <laughs> what I did last time. <laughs> Last time I just, I just shouted out, what if I'm a serial killer? <laughs> Jason's ready. There's no signs out front that say we can't bring our guns. Jason, you're going the other way. But that's, that's the same argument. You can't... It is. It's the same argument. It is. It is. Different degree. All our, yeah, to a very different degree. All our desires are not automatically legitimate. Right? We would all agree that there are some desires that you should not act upon. Absolutely. So that argument just doesn't work. And last but certainly not least, the New Testament is not just talking follow about... follow your heart. Follow your heart. It's terrible advice. Because <laughs> <laughs> our hearts are wicked and sinful. Sometimes our hearts can even lie to us. Right? So we have to compare our hearts to what the Word of God says to see if that's something that is actually good. Last but certainly not least, the New Testament isn't talking about our modern homosexual relationships, our sophisticated modern homosexual. They were talking about like Roman soldiers and slave boys, those sorts of things. Like, okay, but Paul's argument was grounded in creation, or nature, rather. Paul's argument was grounded in nature, not the type of relationship. Paul said in Romans 1, it's against nature. And therefore, homosexuality is against natural law. And not to be graphic, but there are parts that are supposed to go with other parts, right? Like God created like them that way. What did you say, Jay? Like a seatbelt. Yeah, I guess yep. <laughs> so let's look at what's in front of us, right? Let's look at the obvious truths. So yeah, I know that was a lot, but hopefully it was a review, and hopefully this gives you kind of things in one place where you can kind of get your thoughts going a little bit when you're talking about some of these things. Any parting thoughts? Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Bridget. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Bridget. <laughs> I was just thinking about the, the line on uh, the problem of exclusivity. Yeah. And that reminded me of something uh, C.S. Lewis said, where he said, when we're talking about this, either Christianity, if it's correct, is the most important thing. Yep. And if it's incorrect, it's not important at all. The only thing it can't be is sort of important. Yeah. 
Yeah, very true. It's either all or nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, programming notes, we are on break because I got to do some traveling. We will resume October 12th, and we're going to start a series on how to study your Bible, which is exactly what it says. With that guy, Herman? Yeah, Herman. <laughs> Hermeneutics. Yes. <laughs> but we're going to go through a book of the Bible. I haven't, haven't picked it out yet, but it's essentially like a Bible study. I've, always, I've often heard people saying, man, I wish I could get to a Wednesday morning. I wish I could get to a, a Tuesday night or something. So we're going to make it a Wednesday night, and we're going to talk about other ideas and, and tactics of how to study your Bible and really glean from it. So. Are there other like non-biblical books that we should read and prep for this? Like, are you basing it like on the you know like the uh, Fathers of the Faith or I haven't decided yet, but I don't think so. Other than the Bible itself. Yeah. I have a few. Okay. Yeah, no. No. Well, let me pray for us. Thank you, guys. I know we went a couple minutes over. Father, I thank you for tonight, and just thank you for this series. I pray that this is helpful. I pray that as we engage people uh, with uh, the gospel, that you would soften hearts. Lord, that you would build our confidence in why we believe what we believe. And most of all, that we would do it for your glory as we make it mature disciples. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.